we turn to this text today, this text really concerns itself with applying the gospel. Throughout this letter, Peter has been preaching the gospel, telling us the good news that Jesus Christ came. He died in our place and for our sins, that if you trust in him, you're cleansed. If you trust in him, you're a new creature. If you trust in him, you're a citizen of heaven. If you trust in him, you have an eternal inheritance. We have all these good news. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, he starts directing his attention to, so what does this look like in the practicalities of life? How are we meant to live for Jesus in a broken and fallen world? He tells us that we're aliens, that we're strangers, that heaven, uh, this world is not our home, that heaven's our home. And so from chapter 2, verse 11, if you flick back there, you'll see that he starts addressing various situations in which the Christians to which he's writing live. Most of them are Gentiles, they didn't grow up Jewish. Most of them are living in Roman provinces under Roman rule, under Roman custom, uh, which is inspired by Greek philosophy and thought. And from chapter 2, verse 11, he starts saying, okay, we're meant to wage war, but not with the world. We wage war on the inside. We put our sin to death. Verse 12, he says, what we're meant to do with the world is shine a light. We're meant to live such good lives that people would look at us Christians and though they want to accuse us of doing wrong, nothing would stick. And then he starts to say, okay, well, what does this look like in the actual realms of our life? And from verse 13, he starts saying, the Christian gospel doesn't mean that we subvert the social order. In fact, the social order is God's social order. And so for Christians, they are to be subject to every human institution, that is, to the government, where to submit to the government in general. And then verse 18, he even speaks to slaves and says, slaves, you are to be subject to your masters, even if they're unholy, even if they're unjust, even if they're hostile toward you, even if it's really hard. He appeals to Christ and says, look at Christ. He's the ultimate example of what it looks like to submit himself to this world and ultimately to God himself. And then he gets even more specific and he moves towards the home. And in chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, he takes the gospel home and says, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in the most intimate of all places, your house. In the intimate of all relationships, husbands and wives. And the big question that stands over this passage and this whole section is, what does it look like to live for the glory of Christ in their home? What does it look like to live for the glory of Christ in your home, even if it's hostile, hard, and unholy? That's the question we're going to try and answer from today's passage. And I've got two simple points to answer that passage from this text. Beautiful wives, point one, and understanding husbands. So let's jump in to this complex text and, and enjoy looking at it and studying it and thinking about it. I actually gave this passage to a friend of mine. Uh, she is a wife. And I said, hey, read this and tell me what you think. And I quote, it's pretty spicy, <laughs> was her reply. And I think she's right. It's pretty spicy. Was it on the screen? Was it? Yeah. I quote, pretty spicy. Uh, this is a Zinger Stacker burger of a passage with a bit of extra hot sauce for our day and age. Let's read some of those verses again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. 
<laughs> you know, if you remember uh, about 10 years ago, the Anglicans started changing their vows, and it became a bit of a furor in the public media because they changed the vows from I will obey my husband to I will submit. Uh, and even though in some ways that makes it easier, uh, the, you know, it doesn't fit into our world and our culture, and people think this is oppression, people think this is terrible, uh, you might think that. Uh, so I want us to not be totally put off by these words today. And I want to begin by sort of addressing some misconceptions. I want to start by saying what being submissive is not before we figure out what being submissive is. So that word there, be subject, is the same word to submit. Uh, So what does it actually mean? Well, Peter's not saying, okay, all right, wives, we're entering the handmaid's tale now. (laughs) That's not what he's saying. He's not leading us into some strange Christian cult. In fact... Really interestingly, in these verses, the Christian women at the time most likely would have read them as extremely dignifying and ennobling. We have the exact opposite, <laughs> you know, natural inclination. And let's investigate why. So what is what submission is not? I've got five things which I've stolen from Wayne Grudem uh, just to help us clear the ground a little bit so we can understand it. So submission does not mean putting a husband in the place of Christ. The context, remember, go back to chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So we're not to put our husbands, submission doesn't mean he becomes your new Lord. No, you submit not because of Roman society or patriarchy. You submit because God has called you to. It's for the Lord's sake. It's actually out of worship to the Lord. Indeed, in verse 21 of chapter 2, Jesus is the model of our submission. As slaves are to submit to even unjust masters, we read of Christ. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So submission does not mean making your husband your Lord. No, Christ is your Lord and you follow him. Number two, submission does not mean giving up independent thinking. Notice, who is he talking to? He's talking to the wives. He addresses the wives directly in the church congregation. This was rare and unheard of at the time. All their addresses in ancient Roman texts to the household was always to the men, never to the wives, never to the slaves, never to the children. Yet the Bible deals with each of them because each of those people are worshippers of Jesus. They find their identity in Jesus, not primarily or fundamentally in their husband or in their home. And so he addresses the wives. So this would have been ennobling for the women, actually. This would have been a moment where they're like, whoa, I'm I'm being spoken to by by God? Normally they're spoken around, like, speak to the husband to tell your wife this. But here, the wives are spoken to directly. So it doesn't mean giving up independent thinking. Number three, submission does not mean a wife should give up efforts to influence and guide her husband. It's not saying that your your new response is yes, dear, um, every time. The whole point of the passage is actually that wives would influence their husbands. The whole point is that they would win their husbands over. And it's a passage which helps us to figure out what's the best way of influencing and winning your husbands to Christ, whether they're a Christian or not. And the reality is, wives, and I speak on my own behalf, but I'm sure all the husbands would agree, we need your help. We need your influence. We need your wisdom, your guidance, your correction, your rebuke, your training, your example, and your encouragement. So submission does not mean you shut up and say nothing. 
No, no, this passage teaches us that actually you're here to guide us and influence us. Submission is not the main calling of a wife either. Genesis 2 teaches that women are called to be helpers to their husband. Their main role is to help, to influence, to use all their gifts, their creativity and their skill to help the husband as a unit and the family to take dominion of the earth. So that's, submission, uh, that's number three, does not mean give up efforts to influence in God. No, you've got to. That's your role. You're a helper. Number four, submission does not mean a wife should give in to every demand of her husband. Remember, it's for the Lord's sake. Submission is worship to the Lord. Jesus Christ is your Lord, not your husband, ultimately. Everything that in this passage says about wives are meant to do good, respectful and pure conduct, to live such good lives among the pagans. Uh, That would preclude any form of sin. So if there's any situation where a husband is asking a wife to sin, the wife should refuse. And that should be said clearly and unapologetically. You must never sin. (laughs) That's the the big rule of the Bible. Don't sin, uh, even if your husband says so. And it's worth pausing here for a moment and just recognizing that many marriages are very broken. Many men are very, very broken. Uh, Many marriages experience abuse, neglect, and wives should and can seek help and seek protection. Things that Roman women couldn't do. They didn't have avenues to get help if they had a terrible husband. Uh, But you ladies do. And I encourage you, if you're living in a situation where you're being asked to sin or you're being abused or neglected, uh, that you would make use of the law. Uh, that you would make use of your pastor and seek counsel. And husbands, if you are abusing your position, threatening your wives, calling them to sin in any way, come clean today. Repent of your sin publicly, confess it to others, and then we'll seek counsel and help and see what the law and the Lord has to say. So, number four, submission does not mean a wife should give in to every demand of her husband. And finally... Submission does not mean inequality or incompetence of the wife. It feels like that because of the way our capitalist world is structured. The higher up you are, the better you are. But that's not the Bible's economy. The reality is is that we are all in submissive relationships. It's not just things that women do. Men submit to the government. Men in the church submit to elders. Children submit to parents. Employers submit to, employees submit to employers, citizens to the government, Christian sons to their father and to their heavenly father. We are all submitters. So it's a, not a uniquely feminine thing, but it's about our functional relationships. Each one of us in different relationships has to submit. And that doesn't mean we have a different value or worth in our society. Because Christ himself submitted to the will of the Father and he submitted to unjust and ungodly governments, yet maintained his full godness. He was co-equal and co-eternal with God, yet he submitted. So submission does not mean inequality. It does not mean incompetence. Women are not meant to submit because they're not as smart as men and like they just need men to tell them what to do because they just couldn't figure it out on their own. No, that's not the case. In fact, it's often the very opposite. Verse 7 explicitly teaches that husbands and wives are co-heirs of life. They are equal in the economy 
and kingdom of God. The difference is role, not value. The difference is role, not value. And any feeling of inferiority that this text makes us feel comes from outside of the world of the Bible. Due to our world, due to our sin, due to the curse, due to history, due to maybe experiences you've had. It's not actually within the economy of the Bible. So we don't need to change this text. We don't need to be embarrassed of it to make women equal and valuable. No, this text assumes and teaches the equality and dignity of women from Genesis 1 all the way through. So any problem we have with this text lies with us, not with the text itself. Okay, so there's some preloaded distinctions that should help clear the way for some brilliant teaching, God's holy word that is actually God's word to you wives. And if you're not yet married, uh, this can be a great instruction to be like, okay, this is what I could be getting myself into. This is what I should prepare myself for. You had great teaching last night, I believe, with Rebs sharing at the ladies' dessert night. A bit of a round of applause for Rebs. Is she in the room? Come on. She doesn't like that. But I, I, I read her talk. Uh, she sent it to me during the week. And I was actually depressed reading it because I thought, this is my full-time job. This is what I do every week. And she's done one talk in her life, and it was amazing. I thought, oh, man, I'm going to be out of a job by tomorrow morning because everyone's going to be like, wait, she did that. She doesn't do it full time, and how does that happen? It was a really great talk. If you didn't listen to it, it'll be on the podcast. I hope it got recorded. Yes? Uh, okay, good. Um, recommend listening to it on contentment. But now, wives, you get another message. So you get two in a 12-hour period. That's good. So what does it look like then to live for the glory of Christ in your home, even if it's hard, hostile, and unholy? Well, the thrust of these six verses to you wives is this. Pursue biblical beauty to please God and persuade your husband. Pursue biblical beauty to please God and persuade your husband. Look at the language in verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This whole passage, really, the thrust of it is about pursuing true biblical beauty with the two goals of actually pleasing God and persuading your husband. So what is this biblical beauty? Well, three things, three things. Firstly, biblical beauty for a wife means submission to her husband. Biblical beauty for a wife means submission to a husband. Look at verse 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Submission to a husband is a beautiful thing, according to scriptures. It's a winning thing, it's captivating. The command here is simple and unavoidable and good. Wives are called to be subject to their own husbands. Not to all men, but to their own husbands. They are to submit, to use the S word. It must be noted that their submission is different to that of a slave submission to a master or a child submission to a parent. Okay, the, the use of the word likewise there is, is actually a softer version of a Greek word that could have been used, which is 
at the same as. It's actually more like, in a similar way, wives, just like slaves have to submit, you have to submit. But it's not exactly the same. Um, it's different because of the way, the complementarity of the sexes, the way God's designed as head and helper. So what then is submission? What is this S word? Well, Wayne Grudem defines it well. Be submissive to your husbands means that a wife will willingly submit to her husband's authority and leadership in the marriage. It means making a choice to affirm her husband as leader within the limits of obedience to Christ. It includes a demeanor that honors him as leader even when she dissents. A wife's attitude of submission to her husband's authority will be reflected in numerous words and actions each day that reflect deference to his leadership and acknowledgement of his final responsibility. You can leave that, just hover there for a moment. So really what we're talking about is a disposition. Notice the verse says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That's a submit yourself under them. It's not a call to husbands, make your wives submit. That's not the verse. It's wives, out of reverence for Christ, submit yourself. Have a willing and free disposition to align yourself with God's pattern for the world, for husbands to be the head and wives to be the helper. We see him give an example in verse 5 and 6, and he appeals to the old women of the past, and particularly Sarah, Abraham's wife, and it intensifies it. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, so they're faithful women, they used to adorn themselves, so they used to beautify themselves. How? By submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Peter's saying that it's right and good, biblically and biblically beautiful, for a wife to submit to her husband as an expression of worship to the Lord. And if he's an unbeliever, the added incentive is, is this might actually be the thing that wins him over to Christ. Your submission is not only right before the Lord, pleasing to him, but it's also missional, missional submission. See, Peter, he, Peter grounds submission not in theology or Adam and Eve or the Old Testament, but actually, different to Paul, he grounds it in mission. He's calling wives to conform to God's good order of marriage so they can be an evangelistic light to their husbands. Now, why is that? How is that? Well, in the Roman context in that day, it was a bit different to our day, especially in Australia, but depending on where your home country is, your, your home country might more align with the Roman culture. That the, the husband is clearly the head of the home and the wife is to leave her family and completely join the husband's family. Friends, gods, everything. Uh, he is the Lord and you obey. That was the Roman culture. One uh, commentator, a philosopher, Plutarch, said this, a non-Christian, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. You can see the problem that would happen if a Christian wife got converted in a Roman household. Suddenly, it would have been a scandal. She would have had to deny worshipping the household gods, which would bring shame and embarrassment to him and 
They used to think if you deny worshipping the gods, the gods would get angry with you. So now she's going to bring economic ruin and potential ruin on the family. Not only that, now what does she start doing every Sunday morning? She trots off to church on her own. And she's got a whole circle of friends that aren't her husband's friends. She's there on her own with agency and dignity and value and worth that was different uh, to what was afforded to her in the culture. Could have been seen as scandalous. People would have been talking. People might have thought maybe she's going out to go and sleep with another man or something like that. Why is she off on her own? Gossiping, assumptions, embarrassment for the husband. And so Peter says, in order to win him to the Lord after trying to preach the gospel to him and him not receiving it, now, wives, one other way you can do it is to live such a good life among him, to to obey God's order and to submit and, and to be a great presence in the home, to show him that the gospel of Christ is good and doesn't subvert, you know, the natural order. Peter believes that through, without words, her actions could actually win him over. It's really interesting. He hasn't obeyed the word, but through her non-words, she'll win him to the word. And this is actually a good principle for any long-term relationship with someone. You've already shared the faith with them. You've already shared the gospel maybe multiple times. And now you're probably in that position where you live such a good life among them. You live in such a way that's so appealing that you're hoping that you can win them without a word. Daniel Doriani in his commentary says it well. Live so well that he's glad that you follow Jesus. So it would have been tempting potentially for these Christian women to be like, well, I'm a daughter of God. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I'm equal. I, you know, and to throw off the Roman culture and say, no, I'm a daughter. I'm a citizen of heaven. I don't need to be a Roman woman anymore. And Peter says, no, this, this is God's order. This is good. Um, You'll win your husband if you show him that it's better that you're a Christian than that you're not. And so although this passage is focused on those who have unbelieving husbands and it doesn't diminish, I think, how difficult that would be and it would have been incredibly difficult. And for those of you who experience that reality, unbelieving husbands, unbelieving partners, uh, is, is hard. And that's why there's so many verses on it. But this text stands for all wives everywhere. Uh, the pattern throughout all the Bible Um, In Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Titus 2, this pattern is good and right and biblically beautiful. It requires faith. It requires trust in God's sovereign leading and hand. It requires a long-term view that God will make it all right in the end. Don't get me wrong, this does not make it easy. But because this is God's good word, if you obey it, you know you're in the will of God and that you're pleasing God and hopefully persuading your husband. Daniel Doriani says it like this also. She understands that submission does not undermine her dignity, but expresses it. This is her unique opportunity to model Jesus, who submitted to the Father in the plan of redemption, even though Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. So actually, contrary to our natural thinking, it's an opportunity to show your Christ-likeness. It's not a robbing of your dignity. It's actually an ennobling action. So what does it look like to live the glory of Christ in your home? Well, first, pursue biblical beauty through submission. Secondly, pursue biblical beauty through focusing on your internal character, not your external appearance. 
Look at verse 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Here, Peter is not forbidding, don't worry, wearing external adornments. Because literally, if you read it in the Greek, it actually says, do not put on clothes. <laughs> uh, so he's not saying don't put on any jewelry or don't you know, wear beautiful clothes. But he's saying don't, don't think that's true beauty. Don't, don't focus on the externals. Focus on the internals, your character, your modesty, the hidden person of the heart, gentle and quiet spirit. Jesus himself was described as gentle and lowly. It means not insisting on your own rights, not pushy, not selfishly assertive, not demanding one's own way. And it's very precious in God's sight to be a woman of deep, eternal, internal character. It looks like respectful speech. He gives the example of Sarah calling Abraham Lord. Now, I'm not saying, wives, you need to go home and call your husband Lord, but the, and even if you read that story in Genesis 18, she was sort of doing it tongue-in-cheek, really. But the, Peter takes it to be like, it's a respectful way of speaking. It's recognizing the role distinction relationship. Submission. Not insisting on your own way. Not demanding, not nagging, all these things. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him, talking about a possible king. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, Proverbs 31 says. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. There's a beauty, a powerful beauty, an incredible beauty in husbands. I think you'd agree. You see it in wives that are like that. It's so much more attractive than the externals. So wives, a question. How much time are you spending on your physical appearance versus your spiritual adornment? Are you cultivating character? Are you working hard, not just in your job, but in your sphere and in your role, but on your personhood? Because that's what's pleasing to God most of all and may persuade your husband if he's not a believer is your character. So what does it look like to live for the glory of Christ in your home, even if it's hostile, hard, and unholy? Well, pursue biblical beauty by pursuing submission, pursuing internal character. And finally, we won't have time to go into detail in it, but follow the example of the women from the past. Let's read verse 5 and 6 just to you know, read those verses. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. He appeals to Scripture and says, Wives, if you want to be biblically beautiful, look at the examples you have in Scripture of awesome women who follow God, who trusted in Him. Pattern your life off what the Bible has to say. Search the Scriptures to find out what's truly beautiful. Look around at examples, perhaps in the church, of ladies that you think are truly beautiful and model your life off them. So wives, 
How do you live for the glory of Christ in your home, even if it's hostile, hard, and unholy? Well, pursue biblical beauty by pursuing submission, pursuing internal character over external appearance, and pursuing the example of good women in Scripture and those around you. Now Peter turns to the husbands, and that leads us to point two. So point one, beautiful wives. Point two, understanding husbands. We've noted that in the Roman world, it was different to our world. Uh, The husbands had all the power, which could be used for ill or good. And so now Peter wants to take the realities of the gospel and apply it to the home, to the husbands, and how we relate to our wives. It's an incredible privilege to be given the, the role of head of the home. It's not something we've earned. Husbands aren't the head of the home because we're better or because we've fought our way to the top or we're stronger or anything like that. No, we're the head of the home. It's a stewardship given to us. It's a responsibility given to us. And so how, what are we going to do with it? What does the gospel have to say to it? Well, Peter says, through the Holy Spirit, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What are we to learn here? Well, I'm going to say two things with a bunch of sub-points. There's lots in this text. But number one, husbands, your husband leadership does not mean domination. Yes, men are the heads of the home. Yes, wives are called to submit and be respectful. But this does not mean we have a free pass to live as we please to dominate, to be abusive, to misuse our authority, or to just be plain selfish. Instead, Peter talks to the husbands directly and says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, it means live with them according to knowledge. It means know them well enough, love your wives, treasure your wives, find them as precious, and actually live with them in a way that you know them, that is sympathetic to who they are, sympathetic to their being, sympathetic to the way that they view the world, sympathetic to their their struggles, sympathetic to what's going on in their life. Be considerate. Use your position of authority for their good, not for your good. Why? Well, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, weaker vessel here doesn't mean intellectually weaker, spiritually weaker, morally weaker, courage weaker, emotionally weaker. It just means physically weaker. Uh, And in general, 99% of wives are physically weaker than their husbands. And men, in all human history, have abused that fact. Physically, sexually, intimidation, abuse, threaten, anger. We can use that power. But instead, Peter says... If you're a follower of Christ, you're submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and he uses his power for the good of others. You lay down your life for the sake of your wife. So therefore, instead of using your position of strength to dominate, use it to show honor. Show honor to your wife who's a weaker vessel. Use your position and authority for her good to build her up, to love her, to serve her. 
Don't put her down. Don't be criticizing. Don't make jokes about her in a way that makes her look foolish or silly or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Instead, take pains to honor her. Take pains publicly to express gratitude for her. Take pains, you know, there you go. Take pains to uh, show off your wife. It's so un-Australian. It's so un-Australian. And it's not wrong to make jokes and all that, but it's so un-Aussie to encourage (laughs) <laughs> just flat out. It's just, we just don't do it. Uh, but we're Christian, not Australian. Uh, and so let us show honour to our wives in growth groups, show honour to our wives in life groups, show honour in the workplace, show honour on the sport, you know, wherever we're at. Let's honour them. And he gives us two reasons. Why? Well, they're heirs with you of the grace of life. Imagine what that would have been like for a Roman who's just trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian. He's like, I was the Lord of my home, but now she's an heir with me. I'm the heir. I'm the boss. No, no, no. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There is no male or female. There's no distinction in the kingdom of heaven of worth, hierarchy of gender. No, we're equal. Anyone who puts their faith in Christ, young, old, man, woman, slave, free, rich, poor, is equal. We're all co-heirs. And so, you ought to treat your wife as a co-heir of Christ. Your wife will inherit the kingdom with you. (laughs) Your wife is a daughter of the king. That's a motivation to treat her with the most utmost respect, honor, and care. And a final motivation, he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Anyone who thinks that this passage, you know, talks down on women, it's like, well, if you do anything to abuse, dishonor, or disregard your wife, heaven will shut its ears. God will not answer your prayers. That's the dignity. That's how much God cares for wives. God will not bless you spiritually if you're not obeying these verses. That's motivation, isn't it? So husband leadership does not mean domination. It means leading in an understanding way. So husbands, how are you going with living with your wife in an understanding way? Do you make time to listen and actually listen? Not just audibly hear decibels coming out of her mouth, but hear what was said and remember and take it to heart. I struggle. Do you truly know the burdens and pressures she carries? And do you seek to serve her in them? Do you recognize she's the weaker vessel and seek to protect her? Are you going out of your way to honor her? Is it a value of your life that you're like, I'm going to honor my wife? It's a key thing that I do as a husband. Do you encourage her, give her gifts, thank her, speak well of her, even when, especially when she's not present? Do you ensure your children honor her as well? And finally, husbands, how is your prayer life? Are you praying for your wife? We lead from our knees, and that's how true leadership happens in the home. Wayne Grudem says, No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her. There's a link. 
I don't know how it works. I don't know how God works out his heavenly plan, but he said in his word, if we don't do this, he won't hear our prayers. So husbands, be praying and living this out so that God will hear your prayers and bless you. But on the flip side, husband leadership does not mean domination, but it also does not mean abdication. And I think this is often the, the trap we fall into the, on the other side of the horse. Because just as domination is an abuse of these verses, so too is abdication. Live with your wives in an understanding way could be taken in such a way that basically no leadership remains. Well, I'm just, she doesn't want to do it. Or she doesn't like it. Or happy wife, happy life. I'm just, I'm understanding her. I'm being biblical. Yes, dear. She's the boss. That's not what this passage is saying. Being a considerate, understanding husband does not mean sharing the leadership or submitting to your wife. Instead, it means taking the time to know her, love her, and cherish her so that you can best lead her. You understand her so you can lead her, not that so she can lead you. It's mutual. You work together. She's your helper. But it doesn't mean in such a way that you become so absent in leadership that basically she runs the home. Daniel Doriani says, Men occasionally excuse careless leadership by pleading ignorance. I don't understand women. But a man doesn't need to understand women. He needs to understand his wife. Husbands are scientists with a narrow field of inquiry. A man should know the preferences, moods, needs of his beloved so that he can love and care for her. It's very important, husbands, that we don't dominate or abdicate. We live in an understanding way so that we can best lead. And how many ladies, good ladies in churches, just wish their husbands would stand up and lead? They wish they would take the reins, set the pace, have a vision, take responsibility. Sure, if, if we start leading, it might create some friction. It might be hard, embarrassing, and awkward at times, especially if you've been passive. But God will give you grace. Ladies, if your husband is passive and not leading, create a vacuum and then let him start to fill it. And then when he starts to fill it, don't jump in and criticize and disagree and make it hard for him because he's going to be like really nervous to start leading. Uh, so just encourage him. If he gets a three out of 10 on most decisions, just find the three and, you know, G it up. And husbands, if, if you feel like you've not been leading well, the best thing, the best leadership is just repent. I'm sorry. I've not done a good job here. I've dropped the ball. Whether it's domination or abdication, repentance is the way forward. So male leadership, husband leadership does not mean domination, does not mean abdication. It's not optional. We lead. We take responsibility in an understanding way, showing honor. So putting it all together, what does it look like to live for the glory of Christ in your home? even if it's hostile, hard, and unholy. Well, the text teaches, wives, pursue biblical beauty. It's hard. It's hard to be submissive. Not all men are worthy of submission. There's practicalities that you might need to work out. Uh, if your marriage is in a real struggle, I encourage you, speak up. I encourage you, seek help. I'd love to meet with you, um, even if it's today. I'd love to counsel. I'd love to get a meal. You don't need to suffer in silence. 
Husbands, if you know your marriage is in trouble, speak up. God has grace for us. This passage is not here to condemn us. It's not here to beat us. It's here for our good. The only way we can do any of this, submit, lead, be biblically beautiful, consider it in leadership, is by an utter dependence on grace. I can't do it. You can't do it. We have to come before God and say, God, help me, please. And because we're in Christ, we have every opportunity. We have every means of grace available to us. And we don't know what the Lord will do. I want to share with you one story that I read in a commentary, which it does end on a good news story of what it could look like to be a wife who submits even to an unbelieving husband. David Helm in his commentary speaks of a story of his own family. He says, When my mother and dad were married, she was a new believer and he'd recently gone forward in a church service to receive Christ as his saviour. It became evident, however, that my dad had no interest in anything spiritual. So through the years, he would drive us to church and some years attend Christmas. My mother faithfully lived for the Lord and taught us from the word. When I was 13, she found out that my dad had been unfaithful. I can still remember a few days later sitting at the kitchen table as she read to me from 1 Corinthians 7.13 in the KJV, if the unbelieving husband wishes to remain, let him remain. That settled it for her. Theirs was not a happy marriage, but we were a family. 29 years later, in a morning service in a small church on his 72nd birthday, my dad stood at the invitation and truly accepted Jesus as his saviour. We were all there, and Kleenex was passed up and down the row. He was a changed man. He prayed. They had a Bible study in their home. Six years later, he went to be with the Lord. He loved. Joined five years later by my mother. I praise the Lord for his faithfulness, and for my mother's obedience to Scripture, and faithful witness through the years. We can live in hope. Not every story will end like this. Uh, but if you are someone who's not yet a Christian, you realize you're not a Christian, you can be like that man and you can turn to Christ even now and follow him and he will help you figure out all the mess in your life. It won't all be sorted, but it'll be better in Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray and ask that you give us much grace as we figure out how to live these verses out. I pray for the wives of our church to increasingly grow in their true beauty. They are beautiful, and may they grow in it. Help them to know how to live in a hard and hostile and unholy world as women, as wives. And as the future wives of this church, I pray, God, that you would help them to live in accordance with your word. Pray for the husbands and future husbands of this church that you would help us to live and lead in an understanding way, to show honor to your precious daughters. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who needs to repent, that you would convict them through your Holy Spirit, that they would confess and repent, whether it's a wife to a husband or a husband to his wife. Or perhaps your brokenness goes past and there's no longer a marriage. And I pray and ask, Lord, that those people would find grace in you. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to have our marriages together to be accepted in your sight. 
We don't have to be from a whole family. We don't have to have got it all correct. All we have to do is trust in your son, Jesus, our Savior, and we will be co-heirs. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us to trust in you all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.